the best way to start is to hit start. And up comes the toolbar. That's what she said. Good Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to Locked on Buckeyes. I am your show host, Kyle Lamb. We are here. Thanks to the Locked On Podcast Network, second edition of Locked On Buckeyes. I'm glad to be back with you. All of you folks that have followed me over here from Unscripted Ohio, I definitely thank you. We're still here. I'm still the same person. Little bit different format, but we're going to be talking about the same thing, and that is the Ohio State Buckeyes, and it's going to be five days a week. It is real, and it is spectacular. Today, we're going to be discussing a few things. I'm going to give a, a little bit of a history lesson, if that's okay. Kind of a call and response. I'm going to be the teacher, the professor. I'm going to give a little bit of a history lesson. We're going to talk about the history behind what made Michigan a great pro- program, what made Ohio State a great program, and why they've gone different directions. Because for the life of me, I can't figure out what we should expect of the Wolverines going forward. This kind of has all, it all ties in with the report about Jim Harbaugh. He, he has flatly denied that report, by the way. I mentioned this yesterday on the show. He has since come out and said the report of him looking around to the NFL is bogus. But the question becomes now, what do we expect from Michigan? We're going to get into that on the show today. I've got Ross Fulton also coming on. We're going to preview the big showdown Ohio State-Wisconsin on Saturday. Ross will tell you what to expect from Wisconsin schematically, how they match up with the Buckeyes, and where Ohio State is going to have to be on guard for trying to beat the Badgers on Saturday. And in the final segment, I'm going to tell you why I think Ohio State is only going to get better from here on out. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, and I think Ohio State actually has room for improvement, and I think you're seeing signs of them getting better. That's scary, right? Anyhow, Lockdown Buckeyes, be sure to catch us on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on Apple and iTunes, Google Play and Google Podcasts. We're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio. Of course, you can also catch us on LockedOnPodcasts.com. Locked On Buckeyes is sponsored in part by Buckeye Grow for all the latest news, analysis, opinions, and insight on Ohio State football and basketball. Please visit BuckeyeGrove.com. We're also sponsored by JFQ Lending. All of your mortgage and refinance needs should be handled by a Buckeye licensed in 33 states and more on the way. Check them out at jfqlending.com. And finally, we're also supported by GoBus. Ride to over 40 stops across Ohio, connecting rural communities to Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. Get to Ohio State games with GoBus and bring comfort back to traveling. Visit them at ridegobus.com. Ohio State is the preeminent brand in America, and it has been really for about 10 years. The thing is, when you look at Ohio State, one of the reasons why the Ohio State University is so anal about their brand, so overprotective about the name and the marketing and licensing rights, is because it is a cash cow. 
when you look at Nike apparel sales, branding among recruits, Ohio State is the first and foremost name that comes to mind among high school kids. It has been that way for several years. You know, Alabama may be the recruiting juggernaut, and Clemson is slowly taking that over. But Ohio State football, basketball, sports in general is the most recognizable name in the country and has been for 10 years. That is a fact. Ohio State can go into any part of the country and have instant credibility and instant name recognition and get a meeting with any kid and his or her parents because of the name Ohio State. They carry a lot of clout. There used to be a time when Michigan could do the same thing. For a long time, the University of Michigan was a powerhouse when football was gaining popularity back in the 1900s, the 1910s and 20s and 30s and 40s. Really before both world wars, Michigan was a power. All of their national titles were earned prior to 1950 with the exception of that half title that they claim in 1997. And they shouldn't have had that one. Another story for another day. But Michigan has won one single title, a half title, since 1948. But even in the 50s and 60s and 70s, Michigan was right there with Ohio State as a preeminent brand. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. This history lesson, incidentally, kind of coincides with why we don't have a fully fledged college football playoff. It's a little bit of an interesting history lesson. It kind of runs parallel to how we got to this point. In return, because this is what I'm wondering, I'm asking you to help me out. I want you guys and gals to fill me in because I was thinking about this today. Why are we at this point where we can't expect Michigan to be a power? I'm going to give you the background, but I want you to tell me what is a realistic ceiling for the University of Michigan football. And the reason I'm asking this and I'm wondering this is because I was thinking about the response Jim Harbaugh gave in regard to this football scoop story where he was looking for an exit strategy to go to the NFL. And I got to be honest, it, it led me to wonder first two things. Why are Michigan fans so defensive about him leaving? He hasn't provided any value to the program other than, hey, we're not losing to the Maryland's of the world. We're not losing to Purdue regularly. We're not losing to Indiana. Although a lot of close calls, they've struggled with Indiana the last four years. The last four games against Indiana, 7 to 11 points, could be another close call this year. But that's another story for another day. But is Jim Harbaugh a step up from Brady Hoke or Lloyd Carr? Absolutely not. So why are Michigan fans so adamant that he does not leave? Is it, is it just at this point about principle? Would they, feel, uh, would they feel cheated if he left them not beating Ohio State? That's got to be part of it. So Michigan is not a power right now. 
They haven't won the Big Ten since 2004. 15 seasons. They have one single outright Big Ten championship in the last 20 seasons. 1997 was was the second to previous Big Ten outright title that they have. As I said, they have one national title since 1948, and that's a half, a split title. What is different between them and Ohio State? How did Ohio State get to the point where two of the top five programs in the country for the longest time have gone in completely different directions? I have some theories on that, and I'm going to explain now. But what I don't know is how Michigan gets back to being Michigan. What are realistic expectations for Michigan to be able to bring this game, this series, this rivalry, this competition for a Big Ten East division? What has to happen for those two teams to clash regularly and for fans around the country to take notice of that game now every Saturday after Thanksgiving? What has to happen Everybody come together and say, that is the game that we need to see. It all started in the 1950s, 1960s. Michigan was already one of the top five programs of all time at that point. You know, the Michigan mystique dates back really to the early 1900s. And that's why Michigan actually owns the season or the all-time series lead against Ohio State. Because Ohio State started football about 10 years later. For the first 16, it took 16 meetings for Ohio State to get its first win against Michigan. Now, since that time, if you work backward, you've, if you work backward in five-year increments, you've got to go back all the way to 1909 for Michigan to have a serious lead against Ohio State. 110 meetings you have to go back in five-year increments to find Michigan having a winning record against Ohio State. Most of the advantage that they have, which right now is seven wins difference, if you include the 2010 Ohio State win over Michigan, which has since been vacated, if you include that win, there's a seven-win difference. But most of Michigan's damage came in the first 15 meetings where they were 14-0-1 against Ohio State. It really has been a, a series that has been controlled by Ohio State with the exception of the Cooper years where obviously Michigan was very dominant. When the NCAA started broadcasting college football games in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s, at that point, It was one national game a week, and it eventually became one or two regional games a week. But for the most part, the the programs that were already established at that moment in time, the Michigans, the Ohio States, the Oklahomas, the Texas, the Nebraskas, you had USC. Those programs that were already established, those were the ones that were being broadcast on television. But what happened at that point in the 1970s is some of the smaller schools became offended by how big college football was making those bigger schools. They were offended by all of the prominence, the notoriety, and also the money. 
the NCAA controlled the national contract, and to appease the smaller schools within the NCAA, both within lower divisions and also Division One. Remember, the FBS split started in 1978 as Division I AA. At that moment, there was becoming a big difference between the haves and the have-nots. And because the NCAA controlled the money, controlled the distribution of games, to appease the smaller schools, they made a rule you could only appear once and eventually became twice on television all season long. Because there weren't a lot of games. Remember, you didn't have cable back then. You, you certainly didn't have satellite. You didn't have all these games now that are broadcast. Every single game, pretty much, is broadcast now, either live on television or streaming. But back then, it was a couple games a week, and that was it. So there weren't a lot of games to go around. In 1973, in response to Title IX, the NCAA imposed a scholarship limit. Remember before that, before 1973, you could have as many kids on the roster as you wanted. You could have as many scholarship players as you wanted. But because of Title IX and because of the equal spending that colleges had to utilize after, after that, the NCAA solution was cap 105 scholarships. Eventually, in 19, uh, I believe it was 1978, that got brought down to 95. And then in 1992, we arrived at the 85 limit that we have now. But in the 70s, because of no scholarship limits or down to 105 scholarship limits in the 70s, and because of television, if you were an established program, you had all the advantages in the world. Kids wanted to go be a part of your program because they could play on television and they can be part of a national championship contender. There was a huge difference between, back then, a huge difference between Ohio State and Purdue. We think about the Ohio State-Purdue upset, the Ohio State-Iowa upset the last couple of years. Those kind of things were very, very rare back then because there was just so much discrepancy with scholarship limits and, and being on television. But here's what happened. First, on the college football side, and this ties in to how Michigan got to this point, in my opinion. First, you had, in 1981, there was a lot of pushback. The major colleges had formed what was called the College Football Association, and they basically bandied together and started challenging the NCAA control over college football contracts and began to go out and seek their own college football contracts to be televised locally on television. This wound up in the Supreme Court in 1984. The Supreme Court ruled the NCAA policy was a cartel and the schools had their own rights to television. They could go seek their own rights. Incidentally, that is why we don't have a playoff, because this College Football Association began negotiating contracts for themselves with the conferences, first with the schools themselves, and then it became the conferences. And what happened was that College Football Association eventually disbanded, and they got together and formed first the Bowl Alliance in the early 90s, and then what we know now as the Bowl Championship Series, which eventually became the college football playoff. That's the backstory, how we got here, and why the NCAA does not have a playoff, and why the NCAA does not have control over NCAA football. Incidentally, another side note, 
It's also why I don't understand the argument, well, these schools eventually are going to break away from the NCAA and control their own thing. For football, they already do that. They already basically broke away from the NCAA in the 1980s when the College Football Association was formed. Everything that happens now with the, with the playoff and the bowls, it's all the schools doing. It's FBS schools doing their own thing, and they're just getting rubber-stamped approval for rule changes from the NCAA. So the association basically lost control of NCAA football back in the 80s, okay? Here's what happened with Michigan, in my opinion. In the 1990s, once scholarship limits got reduced again and football games began being televised in mass with regional coverage, and now it's it's all pretty much national coverage with the exception of the regional networks, Michigan started to lose its advantage as being a televised entity. And what I think happened in the 90s is the conservatism of Lloyd Carr and then eventually being replaced by Rich Rodriguez, which was a disaster. Gary Moeller years were very conservative. The Carr years were conservative. Rich Rodriguez was just bad. Brady Hoke was conservative. And now you've got Jim Harbaugh running an I. I-formation pro-style offense for most of the last several years since he's been at Michigan. I think what happened is when tempo sped up in the 2000s, Michigan not having the televised advantage any longer, and then you add on the styles of college football changing. Recruits started looking at programs like Baylor, who was doing something different, and Michigan lost its edge. It lost its advantage. Suddenly, recruits were not picking Michigan because they don't have the televised advantage. Every game is being televised. You can be on TV wherever you go. They don't have the scholarship advantage. It's down to 85 now when it used to be 105. And then you've got a conservative offense. Michigan used to have this national recruiting brand where you could attract a kid from California to fly across the country and come to Michigan. Now, do you think a, a big-time quarterback or running back or wide receiver wanting to play in a spread offense, which is basically found all over the country, they're not coming to Michigan for that, or they haven't been in the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think Michigan's conservatism combined with all these factors is the reason why it's not Ohio State. Ohio State right now has the name recognition they have the branding. They have a large public university with momentum, not just as a university, not just athletics, but as a university as a whole. They have the brand. And Ryan Day is the it school. Ryan Day has Ohio State as the it school. Urban Meyer had Ohio State as the it school. Now, Michigan can get back to being Michigan. Clemson came out of nowhere under Dabo Swinney and is now a it school in itself. Michigan can get to that point, but it has no in-state recruiting base. It's competing against Michigan State for recruits and what little talent the state has. It has a dwindling population. They don't have the national name to draw from right now. So I ask this question of you. Tell me what it is Michigan needs to do to get back to being a prominent national program again. Can it do that? I think so. 
but what should be the reasonable expectations for this Michigan program? I want you to hit me up on Twitter, at KYLAM8. What should the expectations for Jim Harbaugh or any other coach taking over the University of Michigan be? Can it get back to beating Ohio State regularly? I have to think at some point it can. And at some point it probably will. But it really is an interesting question. I know how we got here, or at least I have some ideas. But I don't know where we go in the future. I don't know what Michigan becomes going forward. Is this the new reality for Michigan football? Part of me says no. I think Michigan can get back to being a 10-11 win team on the regular. And I say get back to that. That's actually never been that. They've never been that because, for one thing, for a long time they only played 9 or 10 games. The 11 and 12 really came about in the last 20 years. But can they beat an 11-win team regularly? Perhaps, perhaps not. The jury is out on that. But it'll be interesting. Hit me up on Twitter. Kind of curious where you stand on this. What to make of the Michigan program going forward. Hey, coming up next, I've got Ross Fulton. We're going to talk Ohio State-Wisconsin this Saturday. He's going to tell you what Wisconsin will aim to do schematically. Also, this is a great time to promote advertising on this show. Locked on Buckeyes hopefully will grow very, very quickly and become a must-listen among Ohio sports fans. There is room for you to grow your business with us by taking advantage of our competitive sponsorship rates as well as a concentrated demographic. Please email me, lockedonbuckeyes at gmail.com, to learn more about how the Locked on Buckeyes podcast can benefit you. So Ross Fulton now, BuckeyeGrove.com analyst, does a great job breaking down the games. For those of you that are not familiar with Ross's work, check him out on Twitter at Ross R. Fulton. And as I mentioned, BuckeyeGrove.com does a great job. Ross, uh, how you doing this week, my man? Uh, how, how's Ohio treating you? Uh, it's, it's, you know, an idyllic fall uh, week here. So, you know, it's uh, leaving the 80 80- five degrees where I was and coming here to get a little uh, true fall weather. Yeah, I was going to say it's almost a taste of San Diego, except uh, probably a good uh, 20 degrees lower. <laughs> yeah, this is the hottest time of year there and uh, a little bit less water, but uh, very, very lovely here. So no complaint. Well, let's first start by uh, kind of reviewing what Ohio State did against Northwestern, and then we'll talk about this big game coming up here Saturday. So uh, what were your impressions of Ohio State against Northwestern? I think most would say you know, that Northwestern offense was simply not very good. So for Ohio State to mostly hold them in check, they gave up a few, you know, gash runs here and there. But for the most part, they did what you would expect against that kind of kind of offense. But they really uh, kind of had their way against a pretty good Northwestern defense. Yeah, that's how pretty much how I would describe it. I think that they again showed that, uh, you know, offensively they're difficult to defend because they can do – a little bit of everything. And so, you know, defenses like Northwestern have long made it difficult for opposing offenses because they first and foremost are very stout against the run and the defenses defend to take that away. And you saw early that, you know, they held Ohio State to some short gains, a uh, combination of outnumbering Ohio State in the box and missing uh, Thayer Munford at left tackle. But Ohio State just took advantage of that in response and, you know, just kept throwing those opposite hash marks comebacks and outs that they've just hurt so many teams with this year that continue to want to 
you know, commit defenders to the run and, and uh, protect themselves that way. And, you know, and then they hit a couple of passes against the safeties who were getting nosy against the run. And once they did that, that pretty much just opened everything up. Uh, Ross, you mentioned Munford. It looks like he's going to be a go for Saturday, but in his stead, Nicholas Petit Freer got the start, did a pretty good job. You know, I was on with, with Zach Smith with the Menace to Society podcast this week, and he said he thought he, he came out of the gate a little sluggish, got pushed around a little bit, but really got better as the as the game went along. How would you grade Petit Freer's performance in that spot? Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Uh, I, you know, I still think he's a little light. Uh, he, probably, he looks to me like he needs to put on a little bit more weight still. Uh, but, yeah, I thought he kind of – settled in and did competently you know I do think that um it let me put it this way it's, I think it's critical for Ohio State starting offensive line to remain healthy for them to go where they want to go this year I mean I think Sarah Munford is a you know all Big Ten level player so there's no net knock on the guys behind them but um that said you know I I continue to think you know I know that with Petit Freire in particular that people are focused on his recruiting ranking but I tend to think that for most offensive linemen, the third year in the program is the when they should be starting. So, to me, he's on schedule and seems to be improving. So, I want to ask you, because I was interested in the way Northwestern handled Chase Young this week, because I, I kind of feel like this is something that Wisconsin may try to do. They they, they really are one of the first teams that, that did the double teams uh, fairly frequently, and I think because of Wisconsin's offense and the way it's set up, they may do that as well. And it felt like they were really making it a point to roll out Aiden Smith away from Chase Young. Is that something you see Wisconsin repeating this week? And, and also, that also seemed, if they do, it strikes a delicate balance because they really don't have a big play passing game necessarily, and they're going to want to try to make as much as they can from that against Ohio State, I would think. Yeah, you saw Michigan State, too, do a lot of quick passing, a lot of rollouts. I mean, it's basically self-preservation for their quarterbacks. I mean, if Northwestern had continued to do what they did on that first series where Chase Young just went right by their right tackle, it would have been a, 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 a tricky situation for them. So, you know, that's invention sometimes born out of necessity but um yeah in regards to wisconsin i think first and foremost what they're going to do is use a lot of what i would consider heavy personnel multiple tight ends a fullback and see how ohio state defends that ohio state hasn't really had to and you know it makes for a little bit of a tricky situation because when you get multiple tight ends that makes sean wade suddenly have to come into the box and set the edge and so then that calls into question, does Ohio State stick with Wade? Do they bring in Brendan White or even a fourth linebacker, guys who are a little bit heavier but really haven't played many reps this year? Uh, and so I think that Wisconsin is going to look to try to do that and then throw, uh, as you said, play action off of that where you know they're using seven- and eight-man protection schemes Ross, to uh, try to limit the pass rush. Ross, I want to ask you this. You know, I, I, I've been making a big point to say I don't think people should take – that Illinois win over Wisconsin is gospel as far as, you know, necessarily meaning Wisconsin is overrated or, uh, you know, that there are these big flaws existing with the Badger team. But I will say this, in recent weeks, teams have had more success slowing down Jonathan Taylor a little bit. What are you seeing that teams are doing? And it's not necessarily even Wisconsin's run game has been completely taken away because they're still having some success. But what are teams doing to slow down Taylor specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you just see that playing some defensive lines who are 
at least getting stalemates up front and or penetration. You know, Wisconsin, uh, their offensive line is actually fairly inexperienced compared to some of their offensive lines in the past. And, you know, they had so much success against Michigan, partially because Michigan is really weak at defensive tackle, and that's just asking for trouble versus a team that's looking to create so many gap run plays and block down. And so, you know, I don't think it's been anything fancy other than making sure you had the opponent, you had numbers in the box, and you're trying to, you know, win battles up front. And, I mean, again, I think for Ohio State, a lot of it's going to come down to how their defensive tackles hold up. On the other side of the ball, Ross, I'm so impressed with this Wisconsin defense. I know it's kind of, you know, low-hanging fruit to say that, but their front seven wins a lot of battles, and they gave up a couple big plays against Illinois, but this season for them to be giving up less than two yards a carry, and they're doing it actually with 15 fewer tackles for loss in the backfield than Ohio State has, which means they're just not giving up anything. It's not necessarily they have big disruptors like Ohio State, but they just don't give up a ground, and I'm impressed with how they tackle, how they get to the ball, it's just very, very tough to find any space against this team. Yeah, they're an experienced group. Uh, Jim Leonard really mixes and matches looks. So you can never be totally comfortable with what you're going to get, and, and they execute well. Um, you know, they, they have a couple good linebackers, and uh, but they, you know, overall just play soundly. Illinois did have a couple big plays offensively against that Wisconsin pass defense this year, uh, against this pass defense this week. Do you think Ohio State can find a matchup disadvantage back there? I know some would say Wisconsin secondary isn't real athletic and hasn't faced the kind of athletes that Ohio State will have this week. That part is true, but do you think they can hold up, or do you are you in wait-and-see mode on that? I think it's just all about finding the right spot. So, you know, Wisconsin, similar to what Northwestern or others will do, will at times play a really soft zone with their corners. Um, and again, to protect against those deep throws. And in those situations, you know, Ohio State should continue to take those comeback routes and the out routes. Um, however, there are situations against them where they will get aggressive. And in those times, you just got to hit them. Um, you know, Ohio State, frankly, the last time they played Wisconsin had a bunch of those opportunities and they hit one early, but they missed several wide open receivers. And so then it just really comes down to, uh, you know, taking advantage of the situation when it's there. At Ross, if there is one criticism I've had of Ohio State in the past, sometimes they they get a little jumpy and they try to go for the big the big play, you know, maybe too frequently. But this year, it really is death by a thousand paper cuts with this Ohio State offense, and that's why what I think separates them from many of the other teams across the country is not just the talent and and the depth, but the fact that they are willing to truly take what the defense gives them. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a situation where there's a difference between Urban Meyer and Ryan Day. And I, I think actually Urban Meyer even admitted this, that he gets impatient and wants to hit big plays. I think Meyer was a little bit more stubborn and wanting to do what he wanted to do. And Day is perfectly happy to take what the defense is giving them. And, it, you know, it obviously helps that they have the talent that, you know, it's not easy to make those opposite hash throws on those comeback routes. Ohio State makes it look easy, but that's just because Fields – has the arm strength and is very comfortable making those throws. And they have the receivers with the ability to scare opponents to, to back them off. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Ohio state, I mean, that's sort of a situation where, you know, there's been a few times in the first quarter where they probed a little bit. And then once they figure out what's there, they, they take advantage of it. 
He is Ross Fulton. You can check him out on BuckeyeGrove.com as well as on Twitter at Ross R. Fulton. Ross, enjoy Ohio, buddy. Uh, and if you make it over to the game on Saturday, enjoy that as well. I will do so. Thanks, Kyle. We'll talk to you next week, buddy. Yep, sounds good. Thanks, man. In a second, I'm going to explain to you why I think Ohio State gets better from here. It may not manifest itself in a win this week against Wisconsin, but I think Ohio State is only going to get better. I will tell you before I get to that, though, tomorrow on the Friday edition of Lock on Buckeyes, I'll preview more about this Ohio State-Wisconsin game on Saturday, hoping to get a beat writer covering Wisconsin to look at the Badgers a little more closely. Was that loss to Illinois a fluke? Did something get exposed? What happened there? We'll talk about that tomorrow. Reminder, Locked on Buckeyes can be listened to on a variety of platforms, pretty much all of your favorite podcasting platforms. You can catch us on Apple and iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, as well as LockedOnPodcast.com. You can catch my work, of course, on Unscripted Ohio. Hope you'll continue to listen to Corey and Johnny and everything we're doing there. So be sure to catch me on Unscripted Ohio. You can catch me on Twitter at KYLAM8. Catch the show here, Locked on Buckeyes, on Twitter at Locked on Buckeye Singular. Anyhow, so I mentioned it, Ohio State getting better from here. I was on the Menace to Society podcast this week with Zach Smith. I was in studio. We were talking about Justin Fields, specifically the escapability of Justin Fields. I relayed this story. A friend of mine that does analytics, he's he's kind of a Vegas sharp kind of guy. He tracks this stuff religiously. He's got spreadsheets like you folks have never seen before. Even some of you that work with numbers and data, you would be shocked and awed at some of the spreadsheets that he has. Very in-depth, very detailed, meticulous kind of stuff. In his opinion, one of the only things that Ohio State has really struggled with analytically is the the sack rate is a little high. The pass protection I don't think has been bad, but it's been certainly worse than last year. And what's amazing about that is if the situation were reversed, if Justin Fields were the quarterback last year and Dwayne Haskins were the quarterback this year, I don't think Fields would have ever been sacked last year. Dwayne Haskins would be sacked a lot more than Fields was this year. And the thing is, the sack rate would be higher if it were Dwayne Haskins, because Fields has marvelous escapability. His ability to avoid a sack is up there with some of the best that we've seen for different reasons. Braxton Miller was hard to sack because he was elusive. Terrell Pryor... I think actually Terrell Pryor and Justin Fields are similar in that Terrell Pryor had those big thighs, very, very strong lower body strength. And I think that's what Justin Fields is. Justin Fields has great balance, hand-eye coordination, but he's his legs are so strong. He's really tough to bring down. I think that's what's going to help this team going forward because Fields is slowly recognizing blitzes and pressure a little better. The line is protecting slowly better. It's it, it's it's still got a long way to go, but it's getting better. I think once Fields recognizes the pressure ahead of time a little quicker, 
he's going to get, uh, let's just put it this way, the ceiling is unlimited for him because he is seeing things develop. He's keeping his eyes downfield. His accuracy is amazing. He's completing these long throws on the run. Justin Fields is only merely tapping into his potential. I said after two games that he was, bar none, the most talented quarterback I've ever seen at Ohio State. Some people pushed back on that. How could you say that after two games? Because I didn't say he was the best quarterback I'd ever seen. I said he's the most talented. And now we're seven games into the season, and I 100% stand by that assessment. Justin Fields is the most talented quarterback that has ever suited up for Ohio State. He's got everything you want in a quarterback. A good arm, improving footwork, escapability, the ability to run, both improvised and called, the ability to complete passes on the run, the ability to complete passes in the pocket, throws a decent deep ball, could be a little better, but getting there. He's got touch, he's got accuracy, he's got strength. He's got leadership abilities. He may not be as good at any one thing as some of the quarterbacks we've seen, but he's like constructed in a lab where he has everything you want in a quarterback. And that is why that sole reason, along with the development of the line in pass pro, and who knows, hey, if Blake Hobbio can hit more 55-yard field goals, then that makes this, this team that much tougher to stop. Will it mean a victory against Wisconsin on Saturday at noon? No. But I am seeing great long-term potential. They're doing things on defense that could allow them to go up against the Alabamas, LSUs, and Oklahomas of the world and win. I think this is the most complete team in college football right now, and I think they have room to grow. And that is scary, my friends. So... I'm not predicting Ohio State going undefeated. This Wisconsin game is going to be tough. Penn State, Michigan, there are some landmines here. But I, I will say this. I think Ohio State is actually still getting better as we speak. Justin Fields, if he reaches his potential here before the end of the year where it just all clicks, that's a scary thing for college football. That's going to wrap it up for Locked On Buckeyes today. Thank you for giving us a listen. We'll be back again tomorrow where we preview Ohio State-Wisconsin. Make sure you catch me on Twitter at KYLAM8. Catch the show on Twitter at LockedOnBuckeye. As I said, we are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, etc., etc., etc. Thanks for listening to me today. Locked on Buckeyes will be back at you on Friday. Have a great evening.